Turn with me this evening to Paul's letter to Philemon. Paul's letter to Philemon, if you're not sure where that is, it's between Paul's letter to Titus and the letter to the Hebrews. Before we begin to look at this letter, let me just give you a few brief words of introduction. As you may know, Paul's letter to Philemon is the shortest of his letters, but that doesn't detract from its profound message of love, forgiveness, and equality that should exist among all who believe. So who was Philemon? Well, Philemon was a a wealthy Christian, most likely a Greek convert from Colossae. He hosted church meetings in his home. Most scholars believe that Philemon was also the pastor of this church, which was almost certainly the church uh, that Paul wrote the longer to, the church, longer letter to, the church at Colossae. Uh, the letter to Philemon was, uh, by best estimates, written probably in 60 or 61 A.D., and it was written from Paul's prison cell in Rome. Uh, Paul had been uh, imprisoned there, as you'll recall, for his uh, spread of the gospel. Uh, this was during a particularly tumultuous time in the Roman Empire. And Paul, as well as other Christians, uh, were actually persona non grata in many places within the Roman Empire. So Paul's in Rome. He writes this letter to Philemon. And why? Well, writing to Philemon became necessary because Philemon's slave, Onesimus, had escaped from his master and had run away from Colossae to Rome, likely in hopes of being able to uh, disappear among the masses. Uh, Just for the record, this is not some blind conjecture. It was very common for runaway slaves to make their way uh, to the larger cities Because A, it was much easier for them to blend in with everyone else. And B, it was extremely difficult, if not uh, outright impossible, for their masters to find them. Uh, Very few masters would have gone to such lengths uh, to locate a runaway slave in a large city. That could be a very costly, very time-consuming endeavor, especially in a city the size of Rome. Uh, So it would have been very easy for Onesimus simply to just go there and mix in with the rest of the population and perhaps never be heard from again. Anyway, while in Rome, as Providence would have it, Onesimus came into contact with the imprisoned apostle Paul. And by God's grace, Paul led him to the Lord. Now some have suggested that Onesimus... Uh, when he got to Rome, uh, was looking for a man named Epaphras. Uh, Epaphras, as you'll recall, was from the church in Colossae, and it's highly likely that Onesimus knew that he had been imprisoned in Rome, and uh, he might have gone there uh, looking for him, either to uh, confess or maybe for advice, 
uh, so on and so forth. It might very well be that Onesimus himself had gotten sideways with the Roman authorities and found himself in jail. And who just happened to be there but Paul and his cellmate Epaphras. Uh, we don't really know uh, much about exactly how that all transpired. But what we do know, and we can be sure of this, Onesimus was there by divine appointment. Onesimus was there at that time because God himself determined that this would be the time and the place for Onesimus himself to be led to the Lord. Um, Of course, Paul or Epaphras uh, would have most definitely taught Onesimus that having become a new creation in Christ would require him to correct as many wrongs as he could, not the least of which was running away from the man who owned him. Uh, I know that's unsettling to us today, uh, the fact that human beings owned other human beings, but uh, this was just the way of the world. It's just the way things were. And during this particular time, in this particular culture, as well as in other cultures, if a runaway slave was ever found, he was guilty not only of depriving his master of his services, he was guilty of theft. What did he steal? Himself (laughs) from his master. And so, again, I think whether it was Paul who approached him initially or whether it was Epaphras himself, uh, either one of those men would have told him, okay, now that you've run away and now that you've become a Christian, you need to make this right. This, This means going back and becoming a slave all over again, then so be it. Paul, though had another idea. Paul, who knew Philemon, was going to appeal to Philemon's better graces, was going to appeal to him as a brother and attempt to arrange for Onesimus to return no longer as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. Quite the undertaking, I might add, as we'll see as we go through this. Well, we'll talk more about this. Let's go ahead and read beginning at verse 1. Paul writes, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Apphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop there. There are several important things that can be gleaned from this introduction. First of all, note how Paul identifies himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He did not consider himself to be in jail at the hands of the Roman authorities. It's very important. Paul had a very keen awareness and a very keen appreciation for the sovereignty of God in all things. So he identifies himself as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ because he recognized that he would not be there unless the Lord had so directed for him to be there. What a way to live your life, right? How often do we complain about the various circumstances we find ourselves in? You know, we are a complaining people. We moan and groan whenever we find ourselves in places of discomfort. Places that we'd rather not be. How much better would it be, though, to simply thank God at every moment 
for where you are. And then to ask God, how might you use me where you have me? Right? I know that's a foreign concept to a lot of people because, again, we've grown accustomed to complaining. We love to complain. We love to uh, bemoan the fact that life is not always comfortable for us. Paul had learned, and we'll learn here in just a minute, that he's aged quite a bit by this time, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 60, 62 years old. He's aged quite a bit, and with age comes wisdom. And so now Paul is able to recognize that even in the darkest of his hours, God is there with him, and that he'd better make uh, the best of it. So, he doesn't consider himself to be uh, in jail at the hands of the Romans, uh, but by God's design itself. That Paul's side, of course, is his young protege, Timothy. Uh, Note how Paul refers to Philemon himself. He calls him our beloved brother and fellow worker. Now, we might expect this on a perfunctory level, that Paul's going to, uh, of course, appeal to his, again, his better uh, side and, and refer to him as our beloved brother and fellow worker. But Again, Paul's also being serious. He's not just buttering Philemon up. Now, make no mistake about it, he is doing that. (laughs) Let's not candy coat this. He knows that you can attract more flies with honey than you can vinegar. He knows that in order to get Philemon to go along with what he's trying to do, he needs to express to Philemon how important Philemon is to him as a brother friend, and co-laborer in the cause of Christ. But none of it is phony. He's not telling him lies. He really does feel this way. Paul, if nothing else, was a very honest dealer when it came to expressing how he felt about various people. You see that throughout his writings. So, again, while these distinctions beloved brother, fellow worker, um, are perfunctory in a sense, and they are intended to soften the blow, considering what he's going to ask Philemon to do. Um, Again, he's very serious as he does this. As we'll see, Paul's wanting to remind Philemon that A, he considers him not only to be a dear brother in Christ and one who's well acquainted with the ins and outs of the gospel ministry, and B, that he expects him to react accordingly. Uh, What Paul's doing here is what we should be more inclined to do with one another. You know, we should always be inclined to appeal to one another on the basis of our brotherhood in Christ. We should all seek to capitalize on the common denominator of Christ, uh, our our being united uh, in Christ, by Christ, in the body of Christ. Uh, don't be afraid ever, uh, when you, especially when you find a brother or sister overtaken in a particular fault. Don't be afraid to go to them and remind them who they are. You understand that? There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's everything right with that if it's done in love. If it's done with patience and understanding. Again, don't be afraid to come up to somebody and say, Steve... You know, we we really shouldn't act that way. We really shouldn't respond that way because Christ would have us uh, do this, that, or the other thing. Uh, I think we all need to be correctable 
in, in those ways. And this is what uh, the Apostle Paul's also doing here. Now, he also mentions Apphia, our sister. Who was Apphia? Well, we don't really know. Um, most commentators have conjectured that Apphia is probably Philemon's wife. Uh, and by using the phrase, our sister, Paul's again making a subtle appeal to his and Philemon's brotherhood. Paul then speaks of Archippus, our fellow soldier. Um, we don't know really much about Archippus either, except that he may have been Philemon's son. Um, this designation of fellow soldier means that Archippus was also a co-laborer in the gospel. Now, how do we know that? Well, if you look over at Colossians 4.17, Paul mentions Archippus there as well. Colossians 4.17, he writes, Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. So he is, in fact, a co-laborer for the gospel of Christ. Just as an aside, um, the fact that Paul greets Archippus both here and in Colossians is one of the best proofs that we have to support uh, the idea that the Colossian church is this church that meets in Philemon's house. We have no reason to suspect otherwise. Well, in verses 4 through 8, we can see Paul exerting his influence on Philemon much more clearly. Read it with me. He writes, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I heard of your love and of the faith with Uh, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I've come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you since I am such a person as Paul the aged, And now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now you can almost feel the tension here, can't you? You can almost, you know, you get that feeling, okay, when's the other shoe going to drop, right? What's about to happen? I mean, it's almost like the Dear John letter that, you know, some of you have received. Where it's, you know, it's not you, it's me, you know. But first let me tell you how much you really do mean to me before I you know, destroy your life. Is that what's going to happen? We don't know. I mean, if you've never read this letter, you don't know what's coming. What's Paul going to say? I mean, he's buttering him up fairly significantly. Parents, it's like when your kids come to you with flattering words. You know, they come to you with this uncustomary, sweet attitude. What's your first question? What do you want? Right? My grandkids do this to me all the time. They come to me and they're like, Papa, we love you. You're so special to us. And I'm like, what do you want? Just cut to the chase. The same thing's kind of going on here. At this point, I'm sure Philemon was likely thinking, okay, Paul, out with it. Just say what you want to say or ask what you want to ask. But again, before we come down too hard on Paul for beating around the bush, or before we come down too hard on Philemon for his likely impatience, I want to take a minute to look objectively at what Paul says to Philemon here because knowing what we know of Paul, again, these are not just mere platitudes. 
This is not solely Paul's attempt to butter Philemon up. He really believed these things about his brother and wanted him to know. He was giving his brother Philemon an honest assessment of their relationship in the common bond of Christ. A relationship that I think we would do well to imitate in our own relationships with one another. First note that Paul prayed regularly for his friend and brother Philemon. Why? Because he had heard of Philemon's great faith. He had heard of his love not only for the Lord but for all the saints. Now where did he hear that from? Well he probably heard it from Epaphras. First at least. And I'm sure when Onesimus came there and met the Apostle Paul, it's quite possible that Paul said, tell me about Philemon. Tell me about your master. He had already heard from Ephesus. Now Onesimus is probably confirming a lot of what he had heard. So he's able to say quite honestly, I've heard some really great things about you. Your faith, your love, not only for the Lord, but for the saints. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul commends the church at Colossae for constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as they had done since the day they heard of and understood the grace of God in truth. Now get verse 7 of Colossians 1, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who's a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So that's how Paul knew. Over in Colossians 4, verse 12. Colossians 4, verse 12. Paul also writes, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. So this runaway slave, Onesimus, probably gave Paul and Epaphras, whom he knew, a report on the status of the Colossian church. He wanted Paul to know, as well as what Epaphras had told him, he wanted Paul to know what a great man of God his master Philemon truly was. Paul also wanted Philemon to know exactly what he prayed for on Philemon's behalf. He prayed that Philemon would continue to be effective in his ministry and even more so as he considered all the good things that he had received in Christ. He wanted Philemon to know how much his friendship and love had not only comforted him, but had been a source of refreshment for him and Epaphras. Now, let me just stop there for a minute. When is the last time, if ever, you approached a brother and sister in Christ and thanked them for who they are and thanked them for how they love you, how they minister to you? Again, I I fear that in this hustle and bustle world that we're in, and especially in a church that's growing and will soon be bursting at the seams, I I fear that this is going to become less and less a reality. But we need to do everything possible to ensure that those around us 
know that we love and appreciate them. And it could be just as simple as dropping a note uh, in their pew. It can be just as simple as saying, hey, do you have a minute? I just want to encourage you by saying you really mean a lot to me. You really minister to me in ways that I don't even think you're aware you minister to me. When's the last time you did that? I think Paul gives us something very important to emulate. And that is that if we do love one another, and we're commanded to love one another, if we are truly benefiting from one another's ministry, we need to tell each other. We need to lift each other up. We need to encourage each other. Now, we were having a discussion over dinner tonight. You know, as the church grows, it's becoming less and less likely that everyone in the church is going to know everybody else, at least on an intimate level. Folks, don't let that scare you. Don't let that frighten you. Uh, I was telling a story to Dwayne earlier about how years ago I was at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, John MacArthur's church, and you know, I was worshiping with 4,000 of my closest friends. No, I didn't know anybody there. But I remember asking several of the members at random, hey, do you know that person over there? No, not really. Oh. I go to another person. Hey, do you know that person over there? Uh, no, no. But then I finally landed on somebody who told me something that made perfect sense. They were like, no, I don't know that person, but that person has many friends in this church, as do I. Not cliques. We're not about that. But as a church grows, it's really not feasible that you're going to enjoy the same type of relationship with everyone in the church, and that's okay. It's perfectly okay. Now, certainly, if you see someone being ostracized, if you see someone without any friends, befriend that person, right? But normally, those types of things happen organically. Those things just take care of themselves, right? I mean, if you need a friend in this church, just John has just volunteered. He'll be your friend. <laughs> That's not what you meant there, brother, was it? Yeah, put a sign. I need a friend. No, don't do that. Huh? Okay, Pepe's first in line. So, no, but you get the idea here. It's not that the church is getting unmanageable. It's just that it's unrealistic to expect everybody. And I know I've preached on this when we were small. Yeah, I mean, it's already been pointed out to me once. Steve, you were about to do it again, probably. <laughs> I know I have said that if you don't know one another, it's a shame, shame on you. Well, that's easy to say when you're 50 people. It's not so easy to say when you're 200 people, right? So take that for what it's worth. My point, though, is we can learn a lot from the Apostle Paul in terms of how we should react, how, she, how we should be proactive toward those that the Lord has brought into our spheres. We should tell them how much they mean to us. We should tell them how encouraging they are. We should be ready, willing, and able 
to express our love for them. I think, you know, how many of you would agree that you have a little work to do in that area? Right. We're all guilty of that. But I, I think it's very endearing what Paul does here. He didn't know Philemon that well. I can't imagine him knowing him that well. But based upon what he did know about him and based upon the relationship that they did have, Paul's not afraid to reach out to Philemon and say, bro, you mean the world to me. And I think he's being serious, not just buttering him up. But again, he is doing some of that uh, to be sure. The runaway slave Onesimus was probably um, a good source of encouragement himself uh, to uh, Paul, to Timothy, to Epaphras there in the jail. Um, Everything works symbiotically. Everything works together. Uh, or should in the local body of Christ to promote those kinds of healthy relationships. Again, if you've been blessed by the friendship, prayer, encouragement of others, then don't just wait until you need something from them. Tell them for no other reason than the Lord is well pleased when we do things like this. Let them know how much they mean to you just because. Now in verses 8 and 9... Paul says something that can be misunderstood if we're not careful. He says, therefore, that is because of the great love and respect that I have for you as a co-laborer in the cause of Christ. Though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I'm such a person as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Is Paul threatening Philemon here? I mean, it kind of sounds like it. It kind of sounds like he's saying, all right, I'm going to ask you to do this. Don't make me tell you. Don't make me command you to do this. Don't make me exercise my apostolic authority over you and order you to do what I'm about to ask you. Just do it because you're everything I just said about you. Is that what he's saying? No, not at all. As Linsky noted here, he said, this is a sincere compliment to Philemon. Not every Christian's ready to bow to direction from others. We too often feel that we cannot frankly tell them what is the proper thing for them to do in a given case. Philemon is a man of a higher type. Paul does not say that since he's an apostle with high authority, he might simply command Philemon, but that in this case, he'll not need to give such a command. In other words, again, he's complimenting Philemon by saying, look, I don't even need to say this because I know that you're the caliber of individual who will just do this because I'm asking. You're that kind of brother. Paul knew that Philemon didn't need to be motivated by authority. He knew that a simple request coming from brotherly love, coming from a position of concern and trust, he knew that that would win the day. Now Paul's statement at the end of verse 9 has two probable meanings. And it can mean both things. Commentators are kind of divided. Some, as I just said, have adopted both as not being mutually exclusive, but being complementary. On the one hand, Paul's saying, even if I could order you to do what I'm about to ask you, look at me. 
I'm old and in prison. Hardly the picture of power and authority. I tend to like that. Here's a self-effacing moment uh, for Paul. He's saying, "I I could command you, but I'm not the picture of authority right now. I'm getting old, I'm tired, I'm languishing in this prison. So I'm just going to ask you to do this. Now, on the other hand, Paul can be understood as saying, if you don't listen to me for any other reason, then do so because I've proven both as an aging apostle and a prisoner for the cause of Christ that I can be trusted. I have shown you my bona fides. I have shown you that not only can you trust me, but because of the extent to which I have gone in the delivering of the gospel, you should trust me. So I think both things can be true at the same time. How Philemon understood this, we'll never know. We'll just never know. But I think in either case, uh, Paul was trusting that Philemon would heed his request without having to be ordered to do so. Now, I want to pause here again because there's another little bit of practical uh, information that we can glean uh, from this part of this passage. Parents, hear me on this because I think this will go a long way in the quality of your relationship to your children. As a parent, as the supreme authority in the home, You can get your kids to do what you want in one of two ways. Right? You can order them around, commanding them to do your bidding, or else, all the while building up resentment and anger in them, frustration. Or, you can love your children, model for your children, what Christ-like behavior looks like, care for them to the extent that they'll do anything in the world for you. Not just on the basis of fear or intimidation, but simply because they love you that much. The same thing's true for those of you who are perhaps in positions of authority at work. We've all worked for different kinds of bosses, haven't we? How many of you have ever worked for the self-serving, egocentric, authority, despot figure? Right? Where they lead by intimidation. They frustrate you. They will not listen to anything you have to say. It's their way or the highway. Do this because I'm commanding you to do this. I've had, especially in the military, tons of bosses like that. When I was retired from the military, serving in civil service. I had 38 people working for me. And I determined when I took that position that I would not be that kind of leader. I instilled in my people a sense of empowerment. I loved them. I cared for them. I made sure they were well-trained well taken care of in every respect. And for years, we had the most productive unit on the base. 
Why? Because people respond much more effectively and much more efficiently when they feel like they're part of something rather than feeling like they are just another cog in the machine that operates at the whim of their dictator. I think we can learn a lot from that. Here in Paul's letter to Philemon, he says, look, I can be that guy, but I don't need to be that guy. Paul knew instinctively that Philemon was much more likely to go along with what he was about to ask him to do if Paul predicated everything that he was about to say with love, with understanding, with a sense of equality as co-laborers for the gospel. Pastors should lead in much the same way. As a matter of fact, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 5, we're told this very thing. This is why Pastor Mike, Pastor John, and myself you know, consistently strive to be better at loving you. I mean, it's much preferable to the cold, despotic, and dictatorial styles that have been adopted by many church leaders. We want to encourage you. We want to encourage you and we want to have you do the right thing, not out of compulsion, but out of love. And by way of example, look at 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Peter writes, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Paul's approaching Philemon in this same way. So what does he want from him exactly? What does Paul want? Well, he's about to tell Philemon what he wants in verse 10, which, Lord willing, we'll look at next time. I didn't want to get too far into this. I, I entitled this Studies in Philemon. And I knew if I didn't stop it, it would be Study in Philemon. So it's going to be at least two uh, studies, probably finishing it up next week. Just so you know where we're going after that, Lord willing, uh, I plan to um, spend our time on Wednesday nights going through the smaller books of the Bible. I'm going to go next uh, to Paul's letter to Titus. Uh, from there, I'd like to go to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, uh, and then Jude. Um, I think we can learn quite a bit uh, from those important letters. So just be on the lookout. Be ready for next week's study when we learn uh, what it is that Paul's going to ask of Philemon. It's not an easy thing. You know, you've read the, the letter. I mean, you know what it is, but still... To consider being asked that yourself. You know, here's a runaway slave who, by the law, uh, should have been uh, put to death for being a runaway. Here's a runaway slave who should have owed Philemon a big chunk of money. 
because of the work that was deprived of Philemon during his absence. Paul's going to seek to address all that in a way uh, that Philemon will receive Onesimus back, again, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And I don't care who you are, um, that's a tall order. That would have been a tall order, even for the best among us, uh, to simply look the other way uh, and receive him back. But what, what a demonstration of great love and what a great demonstration of forgiveness Paul's asking Philemon to exhibit toward Onesimus. Again, something that we would do well to learn from ourselves.